If you enjoy listening to Voices in Cloud, check out David Linthicum's reports on gigaohm.com. They're about data complexity and cloud solutions, addressing many of the topics covered in this podcast series. Hey guys, welcome to the GigaOM Voices in Cloud podcast. This is the one place where you hear from industry thought leaders providing no-nonsense advice on how to succeed with cloud computing, IoT, edge computing, and cognitive computing. I'm Dave Lithic. I'm best-selling author, speaker, executive, and V-List geek, and your host here for the OnCloud podcast. And joining me today is a special guest, Wendy Nather, strategist, research director, former industry analyst with a former uh, and a former CISO, and we're going to talk more about that. 30-plus years technical experience in the IT operations and security. She's rivaling me on that, uh, including 12 years in the financial services industry and five years in state government. Specializes in security program management, threat intelligence, risk analytics, identity and access management, security operations, incident response, and application security and security service. So I leave anything out, Wendy? Uh, no, I, I can't carry a tune, so no, I think you covered everything. <laughs> so tell us how you got your at Cisco now, and, and tell us how you got to Cisco and, and kind of, you know, 30-year career. That's, that's uh, pretty, um, pretty epic. You know, so what were some of the highlights of it? What are the things that you found that were kind of difficult and some of the things you found that were kind of very pleasing? Well, uh, first of all, my dad taught me how to program when I was 12 uh, on a computer at the astronomy department at the University of Tel Aviv. Um, so that's where I that's where he he got me started on this career. And actually, I was in liberal arts in college, but I found that uh, doing things on the computer, especially typing things for other people and formatting them by hand paid more money. So I ended up becoming a technical writer and then a system administrator. And uh, I got into security when the uh, private options trading firm I was working for was acquired by a Swiss bank. And since I had a background in French and German, I volunteered to move to Switzerland. And I joined their uh, Unix system administration team there and uh, then I drifted into security uh, from that point onward. I've done a lot of other things, including working for uh, state government, as you mentioned. And uh, then I became an industry analyst for five years and talked to hundreds of vendors. And uh, then I helped to stand up the retail ISAC, the Intelligence Sharing and Analysis Center, finally came to join Duo, and then we were acquired by Cisco uh, last October. So it's been a very uh, torturous path. Got it. Got it. And so as an industry analyst, were you independent or did you work for a firm? I worked for 451 Research. Oh, I remember that. I remember them. Are they still around? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, I remember uh, them doing some cool stuff and uh, very much blog fodder when I was uh, you know, doing a lot of uh, uh, blogging about particular issues, things like that. So tell us about your role as a CISO and, and kind of what a CISO is and then tell us what you did specifically. And I'm probably more interested in like what, what your day-to-day activities are than, than kind of the general description of the job. Well, uh, when I was a chief information security officer, um, you know, I did a lot of things that people usually think of when you, when you talk about a, a CISO. I spent a lot of time negotiating, building better security uh, into the programs of the organizations. And that either involved having a lot of money when I was working for a Swiss bank or having no money at all when I was working for state government. 
so I, my, uh, my work has run the gamut from uh, being able to buy whatever I wanted to being, having to be very creative about how we accomplished putting in better security controls. Um, now that I work for Duo, and, which is now part of Cisco, I lead a team of former CISOs, uh, including myself, and part of what we do day to day is represent the perspective of the CISO, both internally and externally. So I will work with the salespeople and say, don't ever say this to a CISO. And uh, uh, externally talk about the things that CISOs wish they could say, but are not allowed to say on the public stage. So what are the top, say, two or three things that's, that's on the mind of, this, of the CISO these days in terms of security? Um, a lot of it is, uh, depending on which vertical they're in and how much ability they have uh, to control their environment and implement things, a lot of it is portfolio management. Uh, there are so many vendors out there and so many tools, and trying to figure out what is the minimum that they need to buy and can they get it to work together. Uh, I talk to a lot of CISOs who are trying to think about well, this, this tool sounds really good, but it will increase the load on us if we add it. Do we really need it? How can we consolidate? And I, I don't know of anybody who's really able to uh, consolidate what they have uh, and, and keep simplifying. I think that's something that everybody would like to do and nobody has time to do. Yeah, I think it goes to the fact that I talk to a lot of CISOs and uh, they tell me about their biggest enemy is complexity. And ultimately, it, the, the amount of systems that are coming into their organization is uh, is increasing uh, in volume. It can, I guess we can thank cloud for that. It's nice that we can provision things almost on demand, but uh, also we can make things complex uh, fairly quickly and we have to secure these things. So does the CISO have a seat at the table in terms of uh, dealing with these portfolio issues? And if so, do they have influence typically? Uh, again, it really depends on the culture of the organization that they're working with uh, and, and how old it is. So you're right, cloud is really making things more complex, but it's also creating a very long tail of technology that CISOs have to work with. A lot of them still have to figure out how to continue securing mainframes and and older technologies and uh you know despite what's in spite of what's being added to their plates every day with newer technologies so that tail just gets longer and longer and longer and managing all of it figuring out what they have i just talked to a ciso the other day who told me about how he discovered through a contract that his organization had two acres worth of data center that they didn't even remember they had <laughs> Oh my gosh. So, uh, you know, that, so there, there are very basic struggles that the, the CISO has to deal with. And um, as technology extends, it is not getting any easier because the old stuff isn't going away. So who does the CISO typically report to? The CIO? Um, a lot of times they do, or they might report to somebody who manages risk if that is a very robust function. Uh, a chief risk officer, even a CFO. Um, it, it really depends on where their risk management functions are housed in that organization. So moving forward, so what are kind of the maybe uh, top two best practices that you see CISOs uh, probably not practicing and they should be? Oh, um, you know, there's such a, a wide variety of things that you can do. Um, 
I find that what worked for me a lot is you have to spend a lot of time doing social engineering. Uh, you really have to do a lot of influencing both at the top and at the bottom of your organization. If you're um, finding and identifying the linchpins of your organization, the people who can influence other people and winning them over to your side, to your mission to build better security, they will help you so much and inform you on things that you need to know about. So uh, one thing I would definitely recommend for CISOs is don't spend, just spend time with your management trying to convince them. Also work from the bottom up because a grassroots push towards security can help a lot. Yeah, I think it is It is really kind of a people problem when you get into the end of it, which I think is what we struggle with as, as technologists. You're probably better at it than I am. You know, but ultimately, you can have the best security in place, and if people aren't educated and trained on how to leverage the systems in a secure way, in a purposeful way, uh, then ultimately that's where the breaches occur. I mean, a lot of times when I did triage in the past on, you know, some major breaches that occurred, uh, you know, typically news-making stuff, you know, it was very simple uh, you know, someone called and gave the password. And so, you know, I'm, I'm here from the uh, international security computer industry and I need your password right away because we're, we're showing a breach and they pass it out and then suddenly gobs and gobs of data are stolen. Uh, are we getting uh, better at that or is this going to get worse as things get more complex? Uh, we are getting better and we can tell that we're getting better because the attackers are moving to different things. Uh, it's kind of like squeezing a balloon. And once you squeeze one end, you know, the breaches kind of move over to the other end of the balloon. Um, so yes, there, there's still credential theft going on. But for example, as you implement more two-factor authentication, especially phone-based 2FA, uh, you're seeing some more attackers trying to do SIM swapping. They're trying to steal the, the, the phone numbers because those are being used as additional authentication factors. Um, so we are making progress, but that doesn't necessarily mean we've wiped everything out. No, I don't think we'll ever wipe anything out. It's very much like whack-a-mole. And as I tell people, there's never systems that are hundred percent secure. And ultimately you're going to have to make a trade-off between your ability to eliminate risk and how much money you want to spend. Is, is that a good way to looking at it? Absolutely. That, that's it. You know, managing risk is at the end of the day, a business decision. And a lot of times the business doesn't make the decisions that we wish they would, but often they have a different view and they know more than we do about the trade-offs that are being made. Yeah, absolutely. So moving forward, you know, where do the security trends seem to be taking us? And I'll, I'll go ahead and complicate the question by saying, yeah, how does cloud kind of influence that? Well, cloud, it, you know, makes all sorts of things uh, much more convenient, much faster, more agile, more complicated. Um, it, you know, we, we both remember back when you could assume a location uh, as part of your authentication when uh, you were trying to give somebody access to something. Either you saw their IP addresses and you assumed that that, was, that meant they were at home or they were in the building and you can't do that with cloud anymore. The other trend that I've noticed is that it used to be that when you were at work, you used very different software from what you used at home. But now people are using the same cloud applications personally than they are, as they are for work. So for example, when I log into Gmail, I can either log in with my personal account or I can log in as Wendy at Duo. And 
and Duo doesn't care at all if I log into Gmail with my personal account. But as soon as I put in my username in that field, Wendy at Duo, um, Duo cares a whole lot about the security conditions under which I'm using that. And so the only difference there, the only place where you're making a distinction is the identity, which is what is leading people to say identity is the new perimeter. In some cases it is, in some cases it isn't, but I think it's a very interesting thing that we are all using the same software all the time and we need different ways to distinguish business work from personal work. So are we blurring the lines there? Are we, uh, and that, should we be distinguishing business uh, and personal if we're, if we're using the utmost in security? Should we have common kind of security uh, things that really kind of wrap around the person? Or is this going to be uh, typically going to be company, company domain dependent? Uh, it, it's going to definitely company domain dependent. I mean, at any time of day, no matter where I am, no matter what device I'm using, I could be doing business work or personal work. And the only difference is which identity I'm using at that particular moment. Uh, I'm using Wendy the person or, you know, Wendy, the head of advisory CISOs at Duo, now Cisco. So um, I don't think we're going to be changing that very much, but we do have to adapt to it uh, in our cloud solutions. So kind of moving forward, and we're, we had kind of a series of breaches a couple of years ago that seemed to have died down, but what are some of the common mistakes that companies are making that could lead to outright breaches that really could take down a company uh, in the next few years? And we don't, don't mention any particular names, but you know, what are you seeing in the, in the field right now that kind of scares you to death? Oh, I try not to get scared to death. It's really bad for my digestion. But uh, what I uh, what I do notice is it's it's not so much the organizations. Uh, I think we need to stop blaming the victims for so much. I think we need to improve the technology that they're using so that it cannot be misused. Um, I, I think we could make uh, technology decisions much easier to take. We could um, improve the uh, user experience and the administration of this technology. Uh, if you just think about, you know, passwords back at the beginning, somebody thought it was a really good idea to use fallible organic storage for primary credentials. And clearly we know that's not the case anymore. And we really shouldn't be blaming users for reusing passwords because they can't remember the ones that they have. So there's a lot that we as technologists need to fix so that we don't have to keep, you know, we should not keep blaming uh, the victims because they're working with very difficult technology. Yeah, and speaking of blaming the victims, I mean, kind of a common complaint I hear from enterprises out there and the Global 2000 enterprises uh, to, to that end is that um, they don't think they're getting the love as much as the cloud is in terms of their on-premise security stuff. And so what I mean is if you look at kind of the R&D spending terms of what the public clouds are doing, you know, the large three, and I'm not going to mention them here, but we all know who they are, are just going by leaps and bounds. And then the ecosystems around them, including the security providers, are investing more R&D and making their stuff localized on the particular cloud platforms out there and leaving uh, not a lot of room, not a lot of money in terms of R&D spend uh, with the traditional on-premise systems. And so, um, you know, a few enterprises are starting to feel the squeeze. Do you, do you concur with that? Or is this something, what can they do about it? Well, I, I think that over time and over the decades, we see 
the trends going back and forth between localized um, data storage and processing and remote data storage and processing. You know, we've had diskless before, and it kind of waxes and wanes with how much bandwidth we have available. I think today bandwidth has gotten really good, and that's why we're storing so many things in the cloud. But we could see a turn in the trend in the future where we have outgrown uh, the bandwidth capabilities that we have, and we might start bringing things back locally. So I'd be really interested in what you think, David, to, you know, whether you think the, the pendulum is going to swing the other way at some point. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, and I made this, uh, drew this conclusion in an InfoWorld blog, blog I made a couple of months ago. I, I think this is kind of a forced march that we're dealing with right now. And so if you're looking at, it's not just management by magazine or managed by blog posts, which has been occurring you know, for the last 30 years in my career, I'm sure you've seen that as well, where we kind of chase the shiny objects. Um, ultimately, this is our ability to, in essence, look at where the investments are being made, look where the trends are going, and, and in essence, kind of build off in those directions. And so in many instances, I think people are moving in the cloud because they feel there's no choice. Obviously, you know, you can't go against the cloud or else it's a good way to get fired in some instances. But, you know, ultimately, uh, they consider this is where everything is going. And they're probably moving a little too fast uh, than they think they, sh they should move. Uh, they feel that the industry is kind of forcing them in that direction, specifically less aggressive industries, you know, manufacturing and, you know, retail, things like that. And they're not necessarily having the time to create the understanding and security and requirements and architectures they need to be successful. And so that's kind of a common complaint. So in essence, they're victims of the market. Are you seeing the same thing? Um, I, I do see a lot of pressure to move with the cloud. I also see a lot of opportunity in that uh, some organizations are sitting on top of such uh, you know, jerry-rigged and duct-taped legacy infrastructure that the only way they can get out of it is to move to the cloud. So um, I, I do see it as a really good opportunity, uh, for example, for um, IT poor organizations that really are barely managing what they have today to be able to move to something that is cleaner, is newer, is better managed for them, and uh, you know, simply be able to abandon the stuff that is just too costly to redo, uh, like nonprofit organizations, um, uh, you know, and uh, other groups like that, where you could have, uh, you know, a pretty well-defined set of infrastructure for their non-core business uh, applications, simply moving them over there would help a lot. So I, I think some of it may be a forced march, but some of it is a really good opportunity. Yeah, so we could kind of come to the conclusion that the cloud, um, in, in many instances, is more secure than the traditional on-premise systems, mainly because we're paying more attention to security and investing more in security as we're moving into the cloud. Right, and you have fewer constraints than you do in a legacy environment in the, in the cloud uh, if they've already been set up to upgrade regularly. For example, you're going to get the benefit of that immediately when you move over. So what do CISOs wish, wish they could say out loud, but don't? Um, lots of things. One of the things that uh, they probably wish that everybody knew is that patching is just not that easy in their environments. I hear everybody in security saying, just patch. And there is no just in security. If there were, we would you know, be doing it already. It's not a matter of awareness. It's a matter of constraints in a very complex real world business environment. 
So um, yeah, patching is not as easy as you would think. So what are some of the best practices that um, are going to be apparent in the uh, security space? And let's go forward, let's go forward three or four years. What are, what are we going to be talking about? If we're going to do this podcast in three or four years, what are going to be the topics of the day in terms of security? Oh boy. Uh, if I could see it three or four years ahead, I, I would already be investing in some things right now. Um, I think we are going to get better at, um, at management, which means a drive towards more centralization uh, than, than we do have today. I think we're going to see some, some better practices around authentication. And that may sound a little self-serving given you know, the company I work for, but we, we definitely are seeing uh, leaders uh, in in the uh, in the high tech space, adopting things like multi factor authentication and seeing the benefits right away, um, I think we are going to see some other standards emerging to solve some problems, including hopefully killing off the password. I think everybody would love to see that. And um, sorry, sorry what, no, no passwords. We're going to go to just just uh, biometrics, things like that. We're going to just default to that. Um, yeah, I don't think we will be completely password free, but with standards like WebAuthn, we are going to see a, a better experience for the end user where they can authenticate once to uh, the, the secure uh, storage in their device and have the rest of the negotiations performed in the background so that they don't have to be involved in them anymore. Yeah, I think that'll be, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the final destination we need to move to in security. I think ultimately we're, to, we're just having a lot of issues with the traditional way of doing things. And it's really about the traditional ways of doing things. And we try to fix it with technology and it really is about practicing security a bit differently. Or, or am I oversimplifying the issue? Um, I, I don't think so. I think it's in how you do it. And we have exposed a lot of technology to users that maybe they really didn't need to see and didn't have to be responsible for. But if you recall, 30 years ago, we were all writing these systems for one another, and we all had the same backgrounds and the same level of knowledge. But today we write for the world, and it's unfair for us to expect them to have the same level of knowledge and capability that we do. So I think we're going to be consumerifying or consumerizing or something like that. Um, everything that we do about technology in recognition of that fact, or else we're going to see a, you know, a revolution on the part of our users who are saying, you know, we're, we're not going to take this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> have a revolution of sorts. What do you think? Mm -hmm. I, I really think so. I think they're going to come back to us and say, you know, you're blaming us for these security breaches, but how is this our fault? You're the ones who built this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's pretty lousy. So, uh, you know, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I, I do think that the, you know, ultimately we have to serve the users better and become better at doing security. Anyway, uh, please pick up a copy of my book, Cloud Computing and Silicon Convergence, available on Amazon and other places books are sold. Also, to make sure to follow me on Twitter at, at David Linthicum, L-I-N-T-H-I-C-U-M, as well as LinkedIn, where I have several cloud computing courses on LinkedIn Learning. And you can find Wendy at dual.com, D-U-O.com, Cisco.com, and at Wendy Nather on Twitter, W-E-N-D-Y-N-A-T-H-E-R. Any other places you can be found, Wendy? Uh, I'd rather not say, actually. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. 
So until next time, best of luck in building a cloud computing architectures. We'll talk to you in about a week. Cheers, guys. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in Cloud, please check out the other ones. Removing hybrid and multi-cloud complexity is the focus of a report that David wrote for GigaOM Research. To find out more about taking IT to the next level, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research for future forward advice on data-driven technologies, operations, and business strategies.